Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Welcome back. We are jumping into the New Testament this week. We did an intro last recording with David Peck, and that was great to have him on with us. But Christopher and I are here today to start discussing the actual New Testament here. The Come Follow Me schedule has us doing Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 1. Now, Christopher and I have commiserated or, or, you know, lamented over and over about how the schedule is laid out, but there are benefits to the way it is. We probably would have preferred to just start with the book of Matthew and go through it, then go to the book of Mark and go through it and and so forth. But the schedule's laid out this way, so we're going to work with it that way, and we're going to try to go along with the benefits that it provides, which are comparative benefits between some of the Gospels. You know, Ben, I actually would have preferred to start with Mark. Yes. <laughs> Mark. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> yeah, Mark, Matthew, Luke, John, right? Or Mar- is it Mark? I think it's Mark, Matthew, Luke, John. Matthew's potentially written as early as the 50s CE, but that's a very early dating. We're going to do a little bit of an intro here to the book of Matthew since we're starting with the chapter one. One of the things to remember here with the book of Matthew is that it is a writing that is also referencing other sources. Okay, so the book of Matthew has at least three different sources maybe that have gone into it. One would be the book of Mark itself. The author of Matthew used the book of Mark in order to construct the writing that it has. There's also another source that scholars refer to as Q. It's a theoretical source that both Matthew and Luke drew on that would have included mostly sayings of Jesus. And then these were incorporated into the gospels, into the stories as they wrote them out. And then We might call it a third source. Matthew does have some unique material in it. And so it could have been something that the author added just from his own, or it could have been that this is some other source that that Matthew drew on. But there's something like 210 unique verses within Matthew, unique to the book itself, not included in the other Gospels. As far as the author of Matthew, it is attributed to a person named Matthew, which I think the assumption becomes, oh, this is the Apostle Matthew. And I think that maybe was part of the intention. The Apostle Matthew is only called Matthew in the book Matthew. In the other Gospels, Mark and Luke, he's called Levi. And so I know that it has come up before. It was like, oh, his his name is Matthew and it's Levi. But I'm just wondering, like, which is it? Do people go by two different names at different times. I don't know, Christopher, is that a thing? (laughs) Well, I mean, there's Christopher and Chris, but that's not the same as Matthew and Levi. It's not exactly clear. It's possible that, you know, when Matthew is taking from Mark, 
as a source, he actually changes the name Levi to Matthew. The reason is not clear. It could be that the author of Matthew wanted to put the name in there to associate the name of the attributed author more closely with Jesus. And so that's how Levi is given that name. Again, it's not really clear why Levi is renamed Matthew within the book of Matthew. Now, Matthew has a particular audience, a purpose that he has in in writing this gospel. The book of Matthew has always been placed at the beginning of the New Testament canon, which is interesting, again, considering that it wasn't necessarily the first gospel written. Mark would have been written before it. But it's placed there because it addresses fulfillments of Old Testament prophecy. It has these specific statements throughout it. And this was to fulfill this, and this was to fulfill this. And so in a Christian Bible, you get some sort of sense of a continuity that goes from Malachi to Matthew, where you have Malachi foretelling the coming of this Elias, this forerunner of the Messiah. And then in Matthew, we have Matthew saying, okay, these are the fulfillment of all of these prophecies that you just saw in in the Old Testament. So it's sort of this transition type of book that is placed there, presumably for that intention and that purpose. Matthew seems to be writing to a Jewish audience, again, because he is trying to reach back into the Old Testament and reference these specific prophecies and thereby demonstrate to his audience that Jesus is this Messiah that has been foretold of in this Old Testament. So there's other gospels, particularly like Luke, that doesn't necessarily have as much concern with that. Luke may have been written more towards a general international or Gentile audience, but Matthew appears to be something that is a little more crafted for the Jewish audience in the way that it is referencing these Old Testament and making allusions to the stories and prophecies within it. We said, you know, Matthew potentially could have been written as early as the 50s CE, but it was certainly written before 100 CE because we find it referenced in other material at the beginning of the second century AD. Yeah, I would put it maybe 30, 40 years later, like I said, with Luke. You know, interestingly enough, the Gospels are not the earliest Christian writings within the New Testament. The earliest ones we have are actually letters of Paul, and the Gospels are written after that. They come later. But we put them at the beginning because the the way that, you know, they're they're placed within the life of Jesus. And Paul's letters do come somewhere around 50. You know, Ben, there's something else we didn't talk about in our intro that comes up tonight, right? Which is there's... When the writing happens and there's the setting, right, that what it's dealing with. And so the authors, they have to tell you what happened in the past, but they do it in a way that's in conversation with their present. And then we come and read it in conversation with our present. And that's how we negotiate these texts, right? Yeah. So they are writing them because there is some issue that they are addressing with this story in their time. And that's one of the things we'll get to as particularly like with the letters of Paul, right? You know, when he goes through and he mentions particular problems, it's not like he's just, you know, thinking of problems out of thin air to address. Like these are problems that 
are actually happening. And so we know that if Paul is writing about it, that means it was actually a problem that came to his attention that he's addressing. Right. And so it's not a discourse that is supposed to line out all of, you know, Christian doctrine and, and belief necessarily, because he's only addressing the specific issues that come up. He's not talking about things that aren't issues. Yeah. On the other hand, as we go through these gospels, if we go through them in chronologic order, they do become more and more theological. And that's part of what's mm. going on, right? As they're being written. The book of Matthew, like all the other New Testament books, is written in Greek. And so not only is the language very different from the Hebrew language that we have been dealing with for most of the Old Testament, but the rhetoric and the style is somewhat different as well. Specifically, the book of Matthew has a structure in it that loosely deals in five different sections. And some have theorized that this would be patterned after the five books of Moses, right? The Pentateuch. And so within Matthew, you know, his whole point is that he's demonstrating that Jesus is the fulfillment of all these Old Testament things, including, you know, Moses. And so Jesus then has to come and present everything as the new Moses, as the Messiah. And so he's going to have these five different sermons that are like the five books of Moses, so to speak. These are the five books of Jesus, quote unquote. Now, that's kind of just a theory about what Matthew was doing, but you can see that there are, are clearly five different sermons where get kind of progressively more explanatory of the kingdom of God. By that, we see that actually the book of Matthew contains more of Jesus's teachings than any of the other gospels. And that's it. That's my intro to Matthew. Well, let's go into the text. We're going to do something a little bit different this time. I say this time, and I mean tonight as we're recording this. <laughs> and maybe the rest of the year. <laughs> right, we may continue doing this. We thought, what if we could read through the text, and you could listen to the text and the commentary together? We couldn't do this with the Old Testament because there was too much to cover. We may be wrong in thinking we can do it with the New Testament. We're going to try it. We'd love to hear from you. Let us know what you think. If you love it, and our volunteer editors hate it, then you can just donate and then we'll pay them and we'll keep doing it. How about that? So let's go <laughs> yeah. through the text. This is the gospel according to Matthew. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. And Judas begat Phares and Zarah of Tamar, and Phares begat Esram, and Esram begat Aram, and Aram begat Aminadab, and Aminadab begat Nason, and Nason begat Salmon. And Salmon begat Buz of Rahab, and Buz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse. And Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias. And Solomon begat Roboam. And Reboam begat Abia, and Abia begat Asa, and Asa begat Jehoshaphat, and Josaphat begat Joram, and Joram begat Ozias, and Ozias begat Joatham, and Joatham begat Achaz, and Achaz begat Ezekias, and Ezekias begat Manassas, and Manassas begat Ammon, and Ammon begat Josias, and Josias begat Jehonias and his brethren, about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jehonias begat Salathiel, and Salathiel begat Zorobabel, and Zorobabel begat Abiud, and Abiud begat Eliakim, and Eliakim begat Azor, and Azor begat Sadok, and Sadok begat Achim, and Achim begat Eliud, and Eliud begat Eliezer, and Eliezer begat Mathen, and Mathen begat Jacob. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. 
So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David until the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations, and from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. Now, Ben, I have comments on these last two verses. Actually, I have comments on the, the, the previous verses. I'll just say this. I promise you, none of the rest of the New Testament will be that boring, okay? <laughs> Until we get to the part that does this in Luke. <laughs> okay, there is that, right? So, and Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary. So here we have a father begets a son, who's a father who begets a son. And then we get to our Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So the pattern changes there, right? But Matthew's doing two things in this chapter. He's showing us the human origin of Jesus and the divine origin of Jesus. And so we're going to see that. And this is the human in Joseph, and this is the divine in Mary. This works because Joseph is from the Davidic line, even though he's not the putative father of Jesus, right? Mary is the mother, and so we're getting a human and divine origin. And then these generations that are 14, do you want to say something about that? Yeah, so 14 is the Hebrew numerical value of David's name. So each letter in the Hebrew alphabet is assigned a numerical value. And if you take the letters of David's name and you add them up, they make 14. Some scholars have pointed out this is one of the reasons that Matthew crafts the genealogy this way. And and it says the generations, you know, we might call this sacred genealogy, kind of like we called it sacred history, right? Because the, the point of this genealogy actually isn't to give an exact genealogy. If you go back into Chronicles, you will see that there are mistakes within this genealogy that Matthew gives. And presumably his audience would have been able to see those mistakes But Matthew's point here isn't to demonstrate an exact genealogy. It's to show that Jesus is a descendant, the heir of Abraham, the heir of David, and he's the Messiah because he descends through that line. And so that 14 numerical is an important number because it relates Jesus back to David, makes him the son of David, and he's right in the generational line when stuff's supposed to happen, right? Abraham, something important happened. 14 generations later, something important happened with David. 14 generations later, something important happened. They went into exile. And 14 generations later, Jesus happened, right? So that's what what Matthew is trying to say here. Like I said, the genealogy isn't accurate. It doesn't appear to be intended to be accurate. Another interesting thing about this genealogy is that it includes women, And a lot of the genealogies that we find in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, would not have included women. They're just, you know, father to son, father to son. But this one mentions several women. I mean, it mentions Tamar, right? We we talked about that back in Genesis. And it mentions Rahab, it mentions Ruth, and it mentions Bathsheba. All of these are not just women, but they also, some of them are non-Israelite women. Like Ruth wasn't an Israelite, Rahab wasn't an Israelite. And they also had what we might call questionable repute. Yes. Right. Tamar was a prostitute. It says Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth acts kind of strangely with Boaz, right? Bathsheba, although objectively we can look at the scriptures and say Bathsheba wasn't at fault at all. In any case, there's an inappropriate relationship going on here. And then this seems to all be sort of setting the stage for Mary. And Mary comes along. And so many of the accusations that might have come up that Matthew was addressing here with Mary saying, oh, well, she had a baby out of wedlock, right? Or she got pregnant out of wedlock. This is unacceptable, right? This is... 
it's culturally unacceptable, right? Yeah. This is taboo. And so part of the thing that Matthew was showing here is, look, look at all these generations that, that preceded David, preceded all of these great men. These had women of questionable repute in them. So that shouldn't really be an issue. Even though I'm going to demonstrate that Mary was a virgin and she was pure, it shouldn't be a question at all because look at all of these women that preceded anyway, and we have David and, and stuff that came out of them, right? So I think that's part of the argument that Matthew is making here by including the women in this genealogy. That's a good point. You know, I, I have to say this on the off chance that my wife would listen to this podcast. Tamar, we can say played the prostitute, right? Okay. Yeah. And then Ruth, I'm surprised you didn't say this, Ben. Ruth, you know, even your Oxford study Bible commentary says <laughs> we shouldn't take uncovering Boaz's feet as a sexual euphemism. And I thought, really? Why not? You thought the same thing, right? <laughs> this is clearly the re- and, and it at the same time, so it's questionable, but at the same time, it is in the Old Testament sense a marriage happening in some sense, yeah. right? Well, I think that the the thing is here, it's questionable, right? People are questioning Mary's and and Matthew is saying, look. God did something through her, and you can ask all the questions you want, just like we did of all these previous women who, right. who came from taboos. But you know, Mary is the vessel that God chose. Yeah, right? Look at so. look at who they are. Now, the other thing is, Mary. Not only it would it be taboo for her to have a baby out of wedlock, she could be stoned to death for this. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. This isn't happening in this her rural village. Maybe because it's her rural village. Maybe because depends on what you think about the story. You know. You know, another thing that occurs to me to say, Ben, is that there's this tripartite division of the 14, 14, 14. Uh Two things, actually. One, the scholarly term for this is telescoping. Matthew doesn't actually tell us all the generations. He's fudging the numbers to get his 14s, right? Mm -hmm. And this is called telescoping. I get it. The last 14, we don't even know who these people are. Like this is post <laughs> yeah. We don't know who they are. Seems to maybe be me. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing. The actual genealogy we have, it ends after Zerubbabel. And so we don't know where Matthew is getting these names. Yeah. yeah. Maybe there was, you know, some source, some family genealogy, some family Bible, right? That all this right. <laughs> genealogy is written in. But in any case, we don't know Matthew's source for this. One of the things I want to mention here is that I know that Talmage in Jesus the Christ, which many people listening to this may have read, he takes the the point of view, and this is probably a standard Christian apologist point of view about these genealogies, and then the one that's in Luke, which differs from this one, right? And Talmadge goes and he says, oh, well, this is talking, the one in Matthew is talking about Joseph's genealogy, his descendancy, and the one in Luke is talking about Mary's. The problem with that approach is that it doesn't agree with the text. <laughs> the text in Matthew and Luke, both explicitly say they're talking about the genealogy of Joseph, well, not of Mary. And then there's so. the thing I pointed out, how that one verse actually deals with both right. at the same time, right? Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. Now, this putting away, it's to let go. It's more literally to let go. He was going to let her go. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived of her is of the Holy Ghost. 
You mentioned, Ben, that the New Testament is different from the Old Testament and that it is written in Greek, and the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. But the Old Testament that our gospel writers have access to is also in Greek. It's the Septuagint. And they're either quoting from it, or they are translating from it, or they're imitating it. Luke, we'll see, is actually going to imitate it in in chapter 1. And so some of the, the figures of speech are lost in translation. Hopefully, we'll be able to bring those out as we go along. And some of them, here we have the Holy Ghost. The Greek gives us pneuma. I mean, I guess you could call that breath. It's a lot like ruach. It's not a bad translation. Mm. So we're talking about the breath of life here, which is interesting, right? To read it that way, the the pneuma hagios, right? This holy breath of life. Yes, spirit, breath, wind. These are all the same word in Hebrew. And then when they get pulled to Greek, there may be some disambiguation there. But then when they come into our normal verbiage of of English, we get ghost, which is a synonym of spirit. So Right from the from the German Geist. And that's in these, you know, this is we're reading KJV. We're still studying NRSV. For your sake, we still recommend getting an NRSV study Bible. I'm also reading the Kingdom New Testament by N.T. Wright from 2011, the David Bentley Hart New Testament from 2017, and Sarah Rudin's Four Gospels from 2021. They're informing also my commentary. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now, Jesus is from the Greek Jesus, which is coming from Yeshua, Joshua. This is the name of, well, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, right? This is the Canaanite conquest. This is Yahweh saves. This is a savior. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Now, this is quoting from Isaiah. And the problem with this verse is in Isaiah, the, it's, he's not talking about something that's going to happen far in the future. He's saying the virgin has already, is already with child. The virgin is already with child and shall bring forth a son. And this is going to happen, well, in nine months, right? So this is a little bit different. We have to renegotiate the text. We have to, and this is what Matthew is doing, right? He's going to make that all of the the messianic prophecies from the Old Testament and the suffering servant prophecies, which get conflated, the Messiah and the suffering servant get conflated, are going to be about Jesus, And by the way, I don't think Matthew thinks that the Old Testament authors are thinking about Jesus. I think he knows, as well as I do, what's happening in the Old Testament. But again, he's renegotiating the text for his own time. Well, and remember, his audience is largely Jewish. And so all of these ideas of this Messiah and suffering servant, the words of Isaiah, are within the consciousness and the mind and the the culture of the Jews. And so by using these illusions and and prophecies and stuff and, and applying them to Jesus, he's bringing their focus on Jesus more specifically. That's right. The other thing I wanted to say about this verse is that he doesn't get called Emmanuel. He gets called Jesus as Mary's told to call him. So there's that. And, and we see this a lot. You'll see contradictions within the same chapter, within the same gospel, between gospels, different theologies. We have to get used to it. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him and took unto him his wife and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son 
and he called his name Jesus. And here I want to back up and deal with the virgin point, right? In verse 23, yes. a virgin shall be with child. Of course, we know this is from Old Testament. Ben, will you go into a little bit of the, the language of this? Yeah, so the Greek word for virgin here is parthenos. I don't speak Greek, so I don't know how well I'm pronouncing that. Pretty good. Yeah, so this word actually does mean what we say in English, virgin, right? So this is a woman who has not had marital relations with a man. However, this is the translation, the Septuagint translation of the Hebrew word, which the Hebrew word doesn't mean the same as Parthenos, doesn't mean virgin per se. It just means a young woman. And so the usage here indicates a woman who has not had marital relations with a man, but the scripture it quotes from Isaiah is the Greek translation of the Hebrew, which does not mean that. It simply means young women, like I was saying. So Mary may have indeed been a virgin, but the prophecy of Isaiah didn't imply that she had to be. Parthenos was actually a term used to refer to various Greek goddesses, specifically Athena. And so it's possible that there's some association in the mind of people within the Greek culture of this term Parthenos with a Greek goddess. Now, remember, Matthew is writing specifically to Jews, but at this time, you know, this whole area has been Hellenized. And so the culture of the people is very strongly influenced by Greek thought and Greek culture. This term might have been sort of a, I don't know, like a, a hot button term in terms of seeing something divine. And so sure. by calling Mary a virgin giving birth, this is specifically associating her with a divine origin. Yeah, it's interesting because you, you're dealing with the divine feminine if you say mm -hmm. Parthenos, right? You yeah. can think of uh, Athena Parthenos, who has, a exactly. who has the most impressive temple on the Agora. You know, Ben, before I got into all of this linguistic stuff like you did, as I was puzzling over this verse before this year, before this reading... One of the things I came across is that if you would be a virgin and you would be, you know, you would get married, you would consummate your marriage and you would have a child born from that consummation, right? From that first encounter, that that would be called a virgin birth mm -hmm. because you were a virgin when you went into that sexual encounter and a baby comes out of it, right? So that's a virgin birth. So that's another explanation. That's chapter one of Matthew. So Ben, if you have nothing to add on Matthew 1, we can go to Luke 1. Yeah, let's talk about Luke. Luke is, is, as far as the four Gospels go, pretty closely related to Matthew, written potentially around the same time, also used Mark as a source, also used Q as a source, but then it has some of its own unique material, which would have originated with the author or some other source that the author had. It's attributed to Luke, who appears to be, by other scriptures we're looking at, could have been a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. The author of Luke is almost certainly also the author of the book of Acts. I mean, it's just not clear if the book of Acts was written by a companion of Paul, since some of its content contradicts some of the accounts in the letters of Paul. And we'll get into that when we get to that stuff. But Acts is essentially the sequel to Luke. And so probably the same author, but there's some doubt as to whether this companion of Paul actually wrote it, because like I said, there's contradictions going on there with some of the material. Well, Ben, I like the titles of these Gospels because either they just say, I think the title of the Gospel of Matthew is actually just Katamatayon. That's it. It's just according to Matthew, not even Gospel. One of the mm. Gospels, I think, has Gospel in the title. But 
this is just according to Matthew. So even if we say the gospel according to Matthew, we're not implying that Matthew wrote it. So mm. the if this is coming, if Jesus dies in 30 and it's coming in either 50, as you've said, is possible, or as I believe, somewhere around 80 to 90 CE, then we're not talking about something written by, you know, a Galilean Aramaic speaking peasant. Right. Which makes sense considering what we're reading, right? We're reading someone who knows how to read and write. He knows the Old Testament, you know, his Bible, his Hebrew Bible, and he knows his Greek and he knows his rhetoric. Not a Galilean Aramaic speaking peasant eyewitness. <laughs> and we'll start Luke as we go into the reading. Luke tells us he's not an eyewitness, that he's actually right. collecting stories that he's heard and writing them down. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Luke indicates here that his audience is a wider audience than what we said for Matthew. He's trying to appeal to a wider and and as we get into the book you'll see that that he's he's doing a little bit more generic themes about how Jesus is helping the poor and the needy and you know trying to do justice. It, it says in the book of Luke he went about doing good, right? And so there's a little bit different theme and focus within the book of Luke here. So let's read Luke. Forasmuch as many have taken in hand to set forth and order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us. This is a formula. This is very formulaic. This is how, in a tradition where learning is passed down from master to disciple, you give this kind of introduction where you say, mm-hmm. I'm not just making this stuff up. I'm telling you what I was told. Once upon a time. Right. <laughs> Even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. They were, not Luke. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. Now we don't know who this Theophilus is. It may not even be a person. Theophilus means one who loves God. Right. Theo, God, Philos, loves, right? Do you know anything more about him or who that might be, Ben? I mean, some people say that this might be a specific person that Luke is writing to, like a magistrate or something. But just the way that the the content of the book is and, and so forth, it seems like he's writing to an audience, not a specific person necessarily. And so Theophilus would be like... Again, it means lover of God, but this is kind of like when somebody writes something and they say, dear reader, right? And and it's almost like he's speaking in the second person here. And so this is a lover of God. This Somebody who's reading this is potentially one of these new converts within the broader Christian community, maybe not Jewish, maybe Greek, right? Remember, Paul is focused mostly on a Gentile proselyting. If Luke is a companion of Paul, which is theorized here and is writing this, then his focus is then towards that community. And so he's addressing them and and giving them this account. You know, you brought up, Christopher, that that Luke wasn't an eyewitness of what's happening, and he admits it explicitly here. He is a compiler of various sources into this one and giving an account based on these other sources. You know, Ben, I'm reminded by what you said about the Dear Reader that Seneca, the Stoic philosopher and tutor to Nero, was born around the same time as Jesus. They were both born between 6 and 4 BCE. If you're surprised that Jesus wasn't born in year one, 
listen to our introduction to the New Testament. We go mm-hmm. into that in more detail. So between 6 and 4 BCE, you get the birth of Jesus and Seneca. And Seneca writes his famous letters to Lucilius, which are published today by Penguin as letters from a Stoic or something like that. But Lucilius, sure, he has a friend named Lucilius, but he's not writing for Lucilius. He's writing for the public. Yeah. And he's writing to Lucilius as a rhetorical device. And so this this works pretty much the same way. Yeah, like when you write to a magazine or a newspaper, you know, letter to the editor, right? You're not really writing to the editor. You're writing to all the readers of the magazine or the newspaper. True, yeah. So now that we've gotten through that introduction, there's a discursal shift, you know, a shift in tone. And Luke, from here through maybe not all of the second chapter of Luke, but a good part of it at least, is going to imitate the style of the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. Thus, there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abia, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So these two figures are both, I'm going to say, super pious Jews. And they both come from important lines, right? Even Elizabeth comes from Aaron's line, right? Right. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. And they had no child because that Elizabeth was barren, and they both were now well stricken in years. And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. Now, this is clearer in other translations, but what's happening here is he has been assigned or he's taking a turn at performing this priestly duty by lot, right? This is how the priests did it. They cast lots. Yeah. And the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. And there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. And this is usually what happens. And honestly, I think if an angel appeared to me, I would fear too. <laughs> well, one of the things to point out here, you know, you're mentioning that this came to him by lot, that there were so many priests that this could have gone to. This is basically a once in a lifetime opportunity, a privilege for him to be able to go in and burn incense. Indeed. And so just the event itself is a great honor. Right. And so he goes in there and he's bound to have some sort of spiritual experience. Right. Yeah. Now, just as everyone who has this kind of experience fears, God always says, or the angel always says, (laughs) don't fear. But the angel said unto him, fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son and thou shalt call his name John. And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth, for he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. So we have again here the breath of life that is going to be he's going to be full of even from before he's born. So he's chosen before he's born, and he's not going to drink wine or strong drink. He's going to be a Nazarite like Samson. There's a motif here of this righteous elderly couple. You know, another translation I was reading, Christopher, this says they were now well stricken in years, but the NRSV translation showed that they were getting on in years, right? So it's like, well, maybe maybe they weren't like in their 70s, like maybe we imagine, but maybe they were in their late 30s or early 40s, right? Time when this starts to become less likely that these things are going to happen. 
This is a motif that comes up all over in the Old Testament. We've got Abraham and Sarah, and then we have Hannah that this happens with in the book of Samuel. And then you mentioned Samson. So this happens with Samson's parents. And Samson then is a Nazarite like John. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God, and he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah said unto the angel, Whereby shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife well stricken in years. And the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel, that stand in the presence of God, and am sent to speak unto thee, and to show thee these these glad tidings. And behold, thou shalt be dumb, and not able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed, because thou believest not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their season. He comes across pretty intense there, doesn't he? Mm. I'm reminded of how he shows up in the cave when Muhammad receives the Quran. It's from the angel Gabriel. From Gabriel. Yeah. He's pretty intense there too. I don't know what to make of that. Well, this is the angel Gabriel here is first mentioned, I believe, in the book of Daniel. When we were going through that, you know, that indicates that the book of Daniel by this time was already considered canonical because, like I said, I think he's first mentioned by name in that book, which was written somewhere around 160 BCE. By this time, 250 years later, when Book of Luke was written, this Book of Daniel is widely known and and considered as authoritative. Yeah. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he tarried so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak unto them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned unto them and remained speechless. And it came to pass that as soon as the days of his ministration were accomplished, he departed to his own house. And after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and hid herself five months, saying, Thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked on me to take away my reproach among men. These couple of verses, 24 and 25, they're a little bit confusing, right? So, She hid herself for five months because people made fun of her, but they made fun of her. It says reproach, right? I've read other translations. She was looked down upon. Let's put it that way. Why? Because she didn't have kids. I know people have left the church because of this. They didn't have kids and they were looked down upon and they felt uncomfortable and they left. My wife and I have experienced this. Have you? Yes. I'm sorry. I'm glad you're back, Ben. (laughs) It's not exactly clear why she secluded herself. It could be for social reasons. It could be that she was not well, right? So like Mm -hmm. women, especially at the beginning of their pregnancy, a lot of times do not feel well. And so it's hard for them to go out and do things. So there's potential reason. It doesn't really explain exactly why. It occurred to me following my own reading, Ben, that she wants to really make sure she's not going to miscarry Mm. before she shows that she's pregnant. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth. I just think this is such an interesting verse. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, I was expecting appeared again or appeared to someone, was sent from God unto a (laughs) city of Galilee named Nazareth. This is a backwater, right? It's a nothing. Right. It's a a middle of nowhere. There's, yeah. (laughs) And, And Nazareth, some have argued, didn't even exist, which which is not actually tenable, right? But people have tried to make this argument. It's so insignificant that they've tried to make it disappear. Right? And this is one of the points that one of the scholars we have been reading, Christopher, makes about this detail 
in the book is that the mention of Nazareth is an interesting piece of information. The town is so insignificant that the author here of Luke probably wouldn't have known anything about it. And so the the inclusion of this detail, now that we know that Nazareth actually was a real place at the time, probably indicates that the detail is true. Right. This is a, an actual surviving historically accurate detail of the story. Right. You bring up a good point, Ben, because the historical Jesus and the Jesus of faith don't always line up. These guys aren't writing history. Luke actually comes closest to writing history as someone in his time and place would write history, right? But this isn't history, right? This is not the point of writing these texts is to give a history. With that, the way that historians do seek out the historical Jesus is they go first to the oldest text, then they look for, you know, can I find this in multiple texts? And then they really like it when it's something that you wouldn't think somebody would say, right? If you would say an angel appeared and told the mother she was going to conceive, of course you would say that, they would say, right? But if you Mm. say he's from some backwater, right? (laughs) By the way, it's not Bethlehem. It's not the city of David, We'll have to deal with that later too, right? That's that principle of dissimilarity here that we're talking. Exactly. This is surely where he's from. By the way, I've been to Nazareth. It's there now. And I'm not saying that means it was there then. But even some of the scholars who are atheists, you know, will argue that Jesus was a historical figure and that he was from Nazareth and and other things that we'll share as we go along. So this is where Gabriel is sent to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail thou that art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Now, I thought it was interesting that, first of all, this blessed art thou, we get blessed are the this, that, and the other, right, in the Beatitudes when we get to Matthew, right, and his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. But it's interesting because in this verse, it's not the same as the blessed from Macarius. This is just saying, oh, it's no, it's okay. not. It's just saying something like, you'll be well spoken of. And that makes sense, thou among women, right? And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. Now, this is a strange verse to me because, I mean, I get that you might be afraid and it's, a, it's an angel, but that that's not what it says. She was afraid. He said, fear not. That's not what happens here, right? He just says, hail, Thou art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. You're going to be well spoken of. And she's troubled. Well, this is Ave Maria, right? This is used liturgically within, you know, by many Christians, as as are other verses within this chapter. This has got a lot of that going on in it. It occurred to me here that sometimes, especially in the Old Testament, when angels come, it's not always obvious that they are angels. Like in Genesis, we have these men just coming to Abraham and and it's just not necessarily obvious that they're that they're angels. Maybe the idea here is that this random guy is coming up and talking to Mary, and random men don't come up and talk to unmarried women, right? Maybe it's a that's good not point. Yeah. Normally, a thing, and so it could be that this is an encounter that's a little bit socially awkward, and so that's why Mary is a little caught off guard. Yeah, she's taken aback. And the angel said unto her, "Fear not, Mary." For thou hast found favor with God. So maybe she was afraid that the the author just doesn't tell us. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shalt call his name Jesus. Not Emmanuel, Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. 
and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? Now this know not a man is as in the Old Testament, right? She has not had a sexual encounter with a man. How can she conceive? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost, or again, the holy breath of life, right, shall come upon thee. And by the way, here it really makes sense, right? How does Adam become alive? After he's formed from clay? Breathes into him the breath of life. Yeah, so she's going to have breathed into her this breath of life, and she's going to conceive. And the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Now it's interesting because for me at least, this overshadowing thing sounded kind of negative. And there are other translations, you get shades and shadows, and it just sounds dark. It reminds me of Joseph Smith's first vision, when it's actually not the divine, but mm, right, the, the thick darkness right. that gathers around him. Yeah, yeah, so, but it turns out this is actually supposed to be of comfort, right? It's it's protection. Well, in the wilderness, the Israelites had the cloud by day that was a shadow you know, protection to them. So that is that comfort, that cloud by day, pillar by night type of thing. So yeah. I can see the illusion there being to that comfort presence of God. Sure. There. And if we put it in its context, it might be nice to have some shade, right? Geographically. And then there's the gourd. I think of the gourd, right? That I'm oh, thinking right. of Jonah. Jonah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, yeah. And, and as a matter of fact, there's also the story from, the, it's in the Quran and it's actually found, you mentioned this in a recent episode, right? That Mary was on her way to give birth in Bethlehem and she actually gives birth on the way to Bethlehem from Jerusalem, uh, halfway under in between. Under palm trees. Right. Under a palm tree. Yeah. A date yeah. palm that feeds her and a water springs up and gives her what to drink. And they were building a highway or a road or something recently. I mean, in recent years in the modern nation state of Israel in Palestine. And they found a church with a a mosaic of this scene, right, of Mary giving birth. And it's reminiscent of the story of Hajar when she leaves Abraham and, you know, goes out. That's right. Has her child in the wilderness. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age, And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. And Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste into a city of Judah and entered into the house of Zacharias and saluted Elizabeth. Now this is interesting to me because As far as I know, and as as far as I've studied and read, and the scholars say that it is not known that women, unmarried women, visited women in other cities, right? This is something married women did. They had that privilege, but unmarried women would not have that privilege. And Ben, you- Even if they're relatives, cousins, it says here? That's right. That's right. Yeah. So I remember you asking pre-show, well, was she not married? Remember that we have to consummate the marriage. So she's betrothed, but until there's a consummation, right? Yeah. Yeah. So if Joseph isn't going to know her until after Jesus is born, then technically she's not married and she's having this visit. So that's what it says, right? She, She visits Elizabeth. And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. Here's that breath of life again. And she spake out with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women. And blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And whence is this to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For lo, as soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in my ears, 
the babe leaped in my womb for joy, and blessed is she that believed, for there shall be a performance of those things which were told her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior, for he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden, for behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name, and his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He has showed strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. Now we're into Mary's song of praise, right? I, I, yeah. I didn't mention that. This is called the Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord, yeah. Right. And it's a lot like, you know, reading Psalms, right? These, these are songs of praise. And this has mm-hmm. a clear liturgical feel to it, right? You can just see people reading this in a liturgical setting, right? I'm thinking Luke here, and he's pulling from different sources. I can see him taking something that, you know, liturgically it was already existing among the Christian communities and and adapting it to this story so that he preserved it within the tradition. So I stopped myself in the middle of this song of praise, this Magnificat. It starts at verse 46. I'm reading from verse 52 now. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent away empty. He hath helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, and he spake to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. And Mary abode with her three months, and returned to her own house. So we finish with the Magnificat at 55, and then Mary goes home. You know, it occurs to me, this is such good news, Ben. You know, the the God of the Old Testament has a penchant for disappearing sometimes, for not coming through in the experience of the people, right? He he said he was going to do this, and where is he now? Where's God, right? Yeah. And so now you find out, oh, this it's happening. And you can see why she would sing this song of praise, right? To the lowly, right? So we get these role reversals here that, that are so prominent within even Psalms. 52 and 53, he put down the mighty, exalted of low degree, filled the hungry with good things, rich sent away empty. These are actually going to be ideas that come up later in Jesus's preaching itself, especially with Beatitudes and other places where he's exalting the poor and, you know, abasing the rich. This is a prominent feature in the Gospel of Luke. Yeah. Now Elizabeth full time came that she should be delivered and she brought forth a son And her neighbors and her cousins heard how the Lord had showed great mercy upon her, and they rejoiced with her. And it came to pass that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they called him Zacharias, after the name of his father. And his mother answered and said, Not so, but he shall be called John. And they said unto her, There is none of thy kindred that is called by his name. It's just not done, right? You don't name your son a name that doesn't come from your family, except under special circumstances, and we definitely have special circumstances here. And they made signs to his father how he would have him called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, saying, His name is John. And they marveled all. And his mouth was opened immediately, and his tongue loosed, and he spake and praised God. And fear came on all them that dwelt round about them. And all these sayings were noised abroad throughout all the hill country of Judea. This verse struck me, Ben. I mean, you can see, again, its population isn't that big, right? I don't know how well they all know each other. I'm just not, I don't know. I'm kind of in between. Would they really care? Do they know who she is? (laughs) I mean, it's a pretty big deal 
But would they think you're crazy if you told them this? I don't know. But what, what struck me about this more than anything is the idea that this could be known easily by people just talking to people. And that's important because the gospel spreads that way. Christianity grows by word of mouth. These texts weren't there in the beginning, and most people couldn't read or write anyway. So I remember one of the scholars I read mentioned a study someone did recently, something unrelated to the Bible, but that applies to this situation. He showed a few people something that really stands out. I think it had something to do with corpses. I don't remember. But whatever it was, it really stood out for them, and they told other people. And so they were interviewed four days later, and just by a few people being shown this thing and them telling their friends, and, and because it's it stood out so much, those friends told their friends. And in four days, 800 people knew. One of the things that stood out to me in verse 65 is just that word fear. So I went and looked up the interlinear of that to make sure, you know, what word in Greek was used here. And it's phobos, right? And so then we get later... I guess you're going to get to this in verse 74, the term fear is used again. And I went and looked that it's the same word, phobos. And I thought this was interesting because here it talks about fear came upon all that dwelt round about them. This is presumably like a fear of God, right? Or of his work, or it's like an awe of God. But then later in verse 74, it says, we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. There seems to be just within a few verses, sort of this, I don't know if it's a contradiction as much as a juxtaposition of the people had this fear, but we're going to come to a day when we can serve God without fear. Yeah. And all they that heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what manner of child shall this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now this horn of salvation struck me as strange, Ben. I Mm. I looked into it, and the image is of a bull throwing up his head. It says raised up here. There are other translations, right? Throwing up his head. And that's why there's an image of a horn, right? And this is going to bring salvation. It's it's kind of a violent image, right? It's powerful, at least, right? We talked about this with horses, you know, right? But the the horn, yeah, could be something that is is potentially violent. I can see that, but it's also the horns. Remember, are also used at the corners of the altar. That's right. And so we're also talking about you know a sacrifice, a this is presence of God, yeah. Type of thing. I so. couldn't help but think too of Alexander. Considering the context, right, that this is the Hellenized world that Alexander left behind after he conquered, and he is known as the two-horned one. That's how he shows mm-hmm. up in the Quran, Dhul-Qurnayn, right, the two-horned one. So that, again, is an image of power. As he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fighters and to remember his holy covenant. See, again, we have that Yahweh is remembering his covenant, right? He forgot about us. Where did he go? Oh, he's back, right? Yeah, these are the typical messianic type of verses here. He's going to save us from our enemies. Finally. We're going to serve God. This is what what people are looking for, someone that comes and delivers us from our enemies. Just like when we get back in the book of Judges, when you have all of these different quote-unquote judges, these are our heroes that come and deliver the people from their oppression and their enemies, and they're able to 
live free as Israelites, so to speak, for a period of time, and then they're wicked again and they go back into captivity. If you, you remember that cycle that happens, the idea here is that there's a Messiah that's going to come. He'll deliver the people from their bondage. Right now they're under Roman rule. He's going to somehow deliver them. They're going to be able to be their own independent people again. The oath which he sware to our father Abraham, just as promised to father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. There it is. In holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. So this is a prophecy that Zacharias is giving. And, you know, the person here changes. You know, he's right. he's referencing the people when he's referencing God. But then here he's actually directing his attention at John. You know, it's funny. This happened to me all four or five times I read this. Wait, who are we talking about? Okay, John. And thou, child, John, I'm inserting John, shall be called the prophet of the highest. For thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, and was in the deserts till the day of his showing unto Israel. This last verse, you know, that's the end of the chapter. It speaks to his coming of age. At this time, there's no ceremony for that, right? Later on, we'll have the, the bar mitzvah or the bat mitzvah, as the case may be, but not at this time. So his showing unto Israel will be when his public ministry begins, right? And we'll come back to him at that time. Typically, it could have been age 30 is what I was reading. So yeah, when he's baptizing in the wilderness. Mm, yeah. So that, that verse 79, Christopher, where it says to guide our feet. I knew you were going to say something about that. Into the way of peace. So this whole, this whole prophecy, it calls it, of Zechariah or Zechariah's depending on the translation. I think my NRSV calls him Zechariah, and this says Zechariah. This does remind me of our Latter-day Saint tradition of blessing little children. Yes. Soon after their birth. That's what I thought too, Ben. You know, or before they're eight. So we give a name, and then there's supposed to be like a prayer, right? And this is guided by the Spirit. So in essence, these are words of prophecy that we are expected to give, bless a child with right after their birth. So it's it's really, you know, probably falls after this. It takes a lot of this in, in the tradition. One thing that my father always told me in my baby blessing that he blessed me with was that I would be a peacemaker. Here you are. That comes to mind often for me, you know, as, as I'm examining my words, my actions. And, you know, I see this first and I think, am I in the way of peace, right? You know, keep my feet in the way of peace. So that just, that's always, I've, I've always reminded of that and kind of, you know, check myself <laughs> from time to time. Yeah, I love that. Well, here you are, Ben. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me with Ben Peterson. <laughs> ben, there are a couple of other things I wanted to point out about these last few verses that don't necessarily show up in the King James Version. In verse 78, you have a dawn. It's called a day spring, right? I, I wouldn't have noticed it. I, I, I didn't notice day spring. I just read right over it without even thinking about it. So dawn, this is a messianic metaphor, right? It shows up in, in Numbers 24, 17 in the same word in the Septuagint. And then, of course, from the dawn comes light. That's in the next verse, 79. And that's a promised liberation from the darkness of captivity, which is always the issue, right? Here we are in captivity again. 
This is darkness. We're looking for the light. And now we see the light. This is exciting. Something interesting there about that dawn in the Latter-day Saint version of the King James, there is a footnote that says, hey, the Greek of this word is dawn. And then there's a reference to Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. The whole point of, of this is to show that John is the Elias that's preparing the way. So, of course, there's going to be some reference to Malachi chapter 4. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son, S-U-N, of righteousness arise with healing in his wings. There it is. And he shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. So this is the sun rising, right? That's the dawn. So that right there is a specific reference to Malachi. And we don't get the whole, you know, Matthew thing where he says, oh, thus the prophecy was fulfilled. But that does seem to be specifically what Luke is referencing here. Right. And if you've been following along with us, and this was covered in the introduction to the New Testament that we recorded with Dr. David Peck, we probably mentioned it before that too, as we were finishing the Old Testament, is that the Hebrew Bible that we call the Old Testament doesn't end with Malachi. It ends with Second Chronicles. And the order in which we read the books from the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible as Latter-day Saints or as Christians in general, really, is finishing with Malachi so that we get that prophecy about Elias that you mentioned so that then we go right into now the New Testament and who do we get? John the Baptist. Right. Yeah. So this part in verse 80 where it says he's in he's in the deserts. Well, the NRSV translates this better, at least for our language, I think it it's wilderness, right? And this is you know, this is the wilderness motif comes up all over, obviously, in the Old Testament and, and in religious talk. So he's in the wilderness until the day he appeared publicly. Later we get some references when it's talking about John. It's going to say he's a voice in the wilderness, right? Crying, and that's going to reference the Old Testament again. So the idea here is that this society and the institutions that are in place right now are oppressive and corrupt. And so only by coming from outside that system can John address it objectively. And he's the forerunner. He's the one that's going to start addressing the oppressive and corrupt institutions in society, call them to repentance And then Jesus is going to come along and and carry it from there, so to speak. Jesus calls John a great prophet. You know, great prophets are in the wilderness. They're crying in the wilderness. That's their job and that's where they belong, right? (laughs) Yeah, you know, it's interesting because it is, I I get your point. It's a really good point, right? That, That it's the wilderness. It is a desert though, still, right? You and I have been there. Yes, it is a desert. Yeah. But the idea here is that it's a wilderness more than... Exactly. Yeah, yeah. This is outside of civilization. Right. I mean, today, this is the the, the site where this is occur. Well, not where the wilderness, but where he eventually will meet Jesus and Jesus will be baptized is, you know, if you haven't seen the River Jordan, at least in this part, in these parts, these days it's tiny, right? And it's a border. Just a it's the border almost, between, right? Like yeah. it's- <laughs> and the, it's the border between modern day Jordan and Israel, right? It occurs to me, Ben, in closing, that God's people, which we see more and more as we get through, you know, as we got through the end of the Old Testament, we saw this. And as we go into the New Testament, we know this is where we're going. It turns out to be everyone, right? All people are God's people. We're all brothers and sisters. And some of us are still being oppressed, right? Some of us still feel oppressed, at least. Like, even if nothing's wrong, we think something's wrong. We have a tendency to think that. It occurs to me that if we took this message into our hearts, that we might rejoice also. And we might find that there is peace through Christ. 
I'm reminded of the story of Palestinian Latter-day Saint Sahar Kumsia, my friend. Geopolitically, the place where these things happen is just a mess, right? You know, being from Bethlehem, originally from Bethlehem, and living under Israeli occupation in Palestine, she has felt the peace of Christ even while bombs were falling, she wrote in her book. Not knowing, by the way, that's in the next town where your family lives, and you don't know if they're dead or alive as you hear the bombs falling. And yet, she found peace through Christ. It's there. It's yours. Claim it. Thank you, Christopher. Thank you, Ben. For Latter-day Peace Studies, I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. I'd like to thank also our editors, Please again, let us know if you like the, the new format. We hope to be able to keep it up. If it doesn't become too onerous for our editors, and if it does, we'll just hit you up for a donation and, and we'll pay them. Thank you for volunteering. Meanwhile, guys, to all the team, to Bethany and Riley, my co-host on our sister podcast, Latter-day Contemplation. Thanks to Kyle and thanks to Michael for editing. Thanks to Tom and Jeff and also Des. Thanks, Des, for being with us and for being part of the team. Yeah. And thank you for listening. Have a great week.